Well, we're continuing today a series that I began last week called Always Have an Answer, and it's basically training in evangelism. And we're talking about um, overcoming various objections to the Christian faith. If you're, if you're out talking your faith at all, if you're engaging people in conversation uh, about the gospel, if you're sharing your faith with any regularity, uh, you're going to hear various objections from time to time. And, you know, objections, ladies and gentlemen, um, are not personal. They're usually not directed personally toward you. They're just objections that people have because they're legitimate to them. Am I making sense? And we all were skeptics at one time or another before we came to Christ. So I think that we need to respectfully engage people in uh, conversations about the gospel and respectfully address whatever objections that come up and always swing it back around to uh, the, the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Christ crucified for our sins, raised on the third day. He's the only way to the Savior. So you can uh, address all these peripheral objections, but always swing it back to the main issue, which is the gospel. That's, so that's what we've been talking about uh, starting last week. We're going to go over a few more objections again today. But go ahead and turn to our master text this morning in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And when you find 2 Corinthians chapter 2, would you, would you stand up with me and let's honor the reading of the word this morning? So just three verses, not a very long one today. And it says this, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance and the knowledge of Him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. That means to those who are perishing, those who don't belong, uh, don't belong to the kingdom of God yet. The aroma that we give off is like the smell of death, it says. To the other, meaning the people who are in Christ, the fragrance of life. Or people who are coming into the kingdom, the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat if you would. All right. Praise God. Well, I just want to do a quick recap of where we were last week. Uh, We covered last week these three objections. Um, The church is full of hypocrites. That's an objection you may hear from time to time. We addressed that one last week. If you didn't hear that, go pull up that teaching on the website and listen to that. It will really help to equip you. Um, The second one is Christians have committed atrocities for centuries. We dealt with that at length. And then uh, we spent the the balance of our time, the, the larger portion of our time last week, addressing where was God when I was suffering. All right, well, today we're going to um, take a little bit of a different direction and address this objection right here. I've got another three today, this being the first one. If God is good, why is there evil? Have you ever heard that one? If God is good, why is there evil in the world? Well, the thrust of this objection is, the, is that if there's evil in the world, if God allows evil in the world, then he's not really good and not really all-powerful if he allows evil in the world. But consider, please, and this is the part of how you would answer this objection, consider, please, that God didn't create evil. God didn't create evil. It came into the world as a result of mankind's disobedience. Okay? 
Evil was unleashed on the world through mankind's disobedience. See, this objection, by the way, goes back to the one that we talked about last week. Where was God when I was suffering? But again, God, God didn't create this evil that causes the suffering. All right? That came as a result of mankind's disobedience. Because God honors free will. Did you know that? God honors free will. And sometimes there's collateral damage to that free will. Hear me. Sometimes you could be the collateral damage to somebody else's bad choices. You had nothing to do with those decisions, but you were collateral damage to those bad choices. Some of you were collateral damage growing up to your parents' bad choices. And there could be a number of different people in your life, throughout your life, that inflicted some sort of injustice or pain upon you, and it was no choice of your own. You were the collateral damage of somebody else's bad choices. Even so, I want to tell you that God can nevertheless use that collateral damage for ultimate good in the years to come if we stay close to his side. You know, Romans 8.28, probably most of you know it by heart, says that for we know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So if you love God and you're called according to his purpose, no matter what happens, no matter how tragic or how bad, God can ultimately weave it together in the fabric of your life for ultimate good. Do you believe that? Yeah, praise God. And the thing that I would ask people in these conversations that make the charge that if God is really good, why is there evil? If God is really all-powerful, then why is there evil? Well, I would swing it back around to Romans 8.28 and, and let them know that, hey, even though that God didn't create evil, you may have been collateral damage to somebody else's bad choices, but nevertheless, God can still use that for your ultimate good if you walk closely with him. So the question is, do you want your pain to work together for good eventually? The only, really, the only way for that to happen is to follow God very closely, and he will make sure that that happens. Praise God. But let's go on with some other ways to address this objection. Um, God has the solution for evil. You might want to write that down. God has the solution for evil, and in the end, all evil will be removed from this world, and the perpetrators of it will be condemned. Oh, yeah, God knows how to bring justice. God knows how to bring recompense for evil. The Bible tells us that there is a, a day of recompense and a year of retribution, the Bible says. You know what that means? It means evil people are going to get paid what they deserve. They may not even see it in this life, but if that doesn't happen, they're definitely going to see it in the next so then, I, I, once again, swinging it all the way back around to the individual who's asking the question or making the objection, swing it back around to them and ask this question right here. What about you? Have you dealt with the evil residing in your heart? Because there's evil in everyone's heart because of the fall. What about you? Have you dealt with the evil residing in your own heart? Are you on good terms with God? You can be. And all the 
collateral damage that's been inflicted upon you can work for your ultimate good. Praise God. So that's one way to deal with that objection. If God is good, why is there evil in the world? But let's move on to another objection here this morning. And that is that, I I love this one. Uh, Jesus is just a crutch for weak people. I really like this one. We're going to have fun with this one. (laughs) Jesus is just a crutch for weak people. Well, first of all, the first part of my answer to that question is yes, of course Jesus is a crutch for those who know that they are weak and needy and sinful. Of course he is. You know, in Matthew 5, 3, it's recorded as Jesus saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know what that means? Poor in spirit means you recognize how spiritually bankrupt you are. People that recognize how spiritually bankrupt they are, that's what it means to be poor in spirit. And those who are poor in spirit are blessed. You know why? Because they're not relying on their own good deeds to save them because they know that they don't have any merits that would save them. They're like the, they're like the tax collector that prayed at the temple next to the Pharisee. And the Pharisee, you remember, the Bible says he didn't pray to God, he prayed to himself. He said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector over there. You know, I do all these religious things, but the tax collector wouldn't even lift his his eyes up to heaven. And he beat his breast saying, be merciful, Lord, to me, a sinner. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. And blessed are those who are poor in spirit. So, yes, Jesus is a crutch for weak people. If, If people don't recognize their sinfulness and how they've offended God, then they can't be saved. Did you hear what I said? If people don't recognize how they are poor in spirit and how they offended God and smashed his laws into a thousand pieces over and over again, they can't be saved. Because they feel like that their own merits are going to get them to heaven. And it doesn't work that way. So once again, yes, Jesus is a crutch for weak and needy people. And all of us in the room today are weak and needy people and recognize how much we need a Savior. Am I right? Amen. I remember many years ago, before I became a pastor, I was attending a church, and there was a a man who attended there for a short time who complained about the quality of people in that church. He was a snob. And uh, he eventually stopped coming and wasn't in church at all after that. And, And folks... We just need to all realize that a person coming to Christ needs to realize that it's really only the minority of people who come to Christ who are part of the upper class, who are the aristocrats, so to speak, right? See, people who come to Christ, we know how messed up we are, and we know that we need a Savior desperately. Am I right? As a matter of fact, I want to read to you an important passage out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And uh, um, I know that print's a little bit small there, so uh, bear with me. Uh, We'll read this together. It says, brothers, consider the time of your calling. That means consider the time when you were called into the faith, into the family of God. Consider the time of your calling. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose 
the foolish things of the world. He's talking about you and me. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly and the despised things of the world. Still talking about you and me. And the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast in his presence. In other words, God didn't choose you because you were so good looking. God didn't choose you because you were of noble birth or that you were part of the upper class of society or because you were so talented. Right? Okay. God didn't choose you because of your charismatic personality. Some of you are going, really? No, no, no. Every one of us in this room uh, are, are described here. The lowly and despised things of the world, the things that are not to nullify the things that are. In other words, God on purpose, on purpose, chooses people that the world might look at and go, man, that person doesn't have much going for him. And then... They come to Christ, and God saves them, picks them up out of the muck and the mire, washes them off, begins to remake them and reshape them, and bring beauty for ashes. Hallelujah. And then, after they walk with the Lord for a while, and God remakes them and reshapes them, then people look at them and go, uh, wait, wait a minute, I knew you when, what's happened to you? Am I right? Yes. Hallelujah. Hey, let, let me just brag on God here for a second. Can I? Okay. Uh, I graduated from Columbus North High School in a class of 500 people. I graduated in the lower one-third of my graduating class. I was lucky to make it through high school with, anyway. I was not considered math raising his hand like, yeah, me too, brother. I was lucky to make it. Okay, hated school. Um, I was lucky to eke by. And, uh, you know, I'm just bragging on, I'm just going to brag on God right now. I absolutely know my IQ went up when I started serving the Lord. I know it. I know my IQ went up when I served the Lord, when I started serving the Lord. Um, and again, I'm, I'm just, I'm just telling you, I'm, I'm going to tell you this, not to shine the spotlight on me, but to shine the spotlight on God. Because if you knew me prior to coming into Christ, you might be one of those people that would say, eh, poor guy, he doesn't have a lot going for him. Look at that dumb mullet he's wearing. <laughs> now, I do lectures where I discuss biochemistry with holistic and integrative medical doctors. Okay, I, I, I do lectures at universities and radio programs and television programs uh, on health. And uh, I've written 11 books, all to the glory of God, because this guy right here, without the Lord, nothing against pumping gas, but that's probably what I'd be doing right now. I mean, praise God for people that pump gas. You know, we need, well, actually, there's not, you know, there's nobody pumps gas anymore, do they? No. <laughs> Hey, you know what? When I said that, I was just talking about myself and all of you. 
No one pumps gas anymore. We all pump our own gas. Okay. What, what's that? What's that? <laughs> what's that Tim Hawkins song? I work at Subway. Remember that? I, I guess not. <laughs> anyway. Whew. My point is, okay, I have about this. Thank God for people that uh, serve behind the counter at, uh, you know, at restaurants, you know, yeah, at, at you know, they, they, the little 16-year-olds behind the counter taking your order, you know, praise God for them. That's probably what I'd be doing right now if it wasn't for God just taking me and pulling me up and dusting me off and saying, you poor, broken, lowly and despised thing of the world, I'm going to take you to nullify the things that are so that you, Andy, cannot boast in my presence or anyone else's presence. Because what I do for you, you know you can't do for yourself. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, so, so that's what we need to get across to people. When people say, Jesus is a crutch for weak people, say, exactly. Exactly. Now, on that note, though, I want to shift the conversation a little bit and tell you that Karl Marx, who is the author of the Communist Manifesto, said religion is the opiate of the masses, or the drug of the masses. That's what he said. Religion is the opiate of the masses. See, critics such as Marx have charged that religion is an invention designed for people incapable of coping with life's pressures. And for the most part, I would agree with him that all these other man-made religions, I would say that his assessment is accurate, but it certainly doesn't apply to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I also want to say this about Marx's statement that religion is the opiate of the masses, the, the drug of the masses, and, and that people like Marx have charged that religion is simply an invention designed for people incapable of coping with life's pressures. I find that amusingly hypocritical. Do you know why? Hello, drugs and alcohol. Are the, are, the drug, are, are the drug of choice of the masses for people incapable of coping with life's pressures so they turn to drugs and alcohol, for goodness sake? How do you leave that out of the discussion? Pornography is, the, is, is the, the drug of choice of many people because they can't cope with life's pressures. Psychiatry and counseling. Not that I'm against psychiatry and counseling in every situation, but look, why do we have psychiatry and counseling? Because there's so many people who cannot cope with life's pressures, and yet it's okay for people to seek out psychiatry and counseling. It's supposedly okay for people to seek out medication for you know, anxiety and depression and that sort of thing, but yet they pick on religion for people that supposedly can't cope with life's pressures? Come on, how hypocritical can you get? 
So when people say that religion is an invention designed for people who cannot cope with life's pressures, say, um, drugs and alcohol, um, psychiatry and counseling, I mean, hello. How do you not bring that up in the conversation? <laughs> anyway. Folks, I want to tell you something. Everyone, and I mean everyone, leans on a crutch of some sort. At some point, everyone needs someone or something to help them cope with life's difficulties. And praise God, we have a God of the universe who knows you better than you know yourself, who created the world and is not overwhelmed and is not nervous about anything. Okay, hallelujah. Yeah, go ahead. Praise God. God's not up in heaven wringing his hands going, oh my goodness, what am I going to do about Don Donato's situation? I've never faced this one before. It does not make him nervous, does it, Don? doesn't make him nervous. God has got the answer for everything. For everything. Likewise, it's not weak to admit that you need help. It's not weak weak to admit that you need help. In fact, it's only those who do from a spiritual standpoint who will be saved. It's only those who understand their weakness, their frailty, their spiritual depravity who will be saved when they can admit that. And that's a very important point that you need to bring out in the conversations that you have with people when you share the gospel with them. Amen. Now, on that, the note about weakness, I, I want to bring a different point to the conversation here because there's actually two sides of weakness. And I want to read you a couple of quotes to set up where I'm going with this uh, point right here. Uh, so the fir first quote is by D.L. Moody, and he said, Real, true faith is man's weakness leaning on God's strength. So yeah, it's an admission that we are weak and needy people and that we need God's strength. So real true faith is man's weakness leaning on God's strength. But let me read you another quote that I think is very interesting as well by Alexander McLaren. And he says, in such a world as this, with such hearts as ours, weakness is wickedness in the long run. Now, hang with me on here as we read this quote. Weakness is wickedness in the long run. Whoever lets himself be shaped and guided by anything lower than an inflexible will fixed in obedience to God will in the end be shaped into a deformity and guided to wreck and ruin. So when you think about it, it's really only those who walk closely with the Lord who could be regarded as strong in some ways. I mean, really, it's only weak people. Listen to me. It's only weak people who let themselves be ruled by their passions. It's only strong people, on the other hand, who will not allow themselves to be ruled by their lusts and passions, but who instead exercise the spiritual fruit of self-control. See, let's be honest. There's a lot of people who are slaves to their lust, yet they proclaim themselves to be strong. I mean, for goodness sake, take away someone's cell phone for a week and see how strong they are. 
<laughs> Take away someone's favorite daily indulgence like their coffee or their video games or their favorite TV show and see how strong they are. Have these so-called strong people ever fasted for even a day, let alone multiple days? See, if you want to walk with the Lord, you're going to have countless times in your life where uh, you have to say no to yourself and yes to the Spirit of God. Well, I want to say that again. If, if you want to please God, if you want to walk closely with the Lord, there's going to be times and lots of times in your life where you're going to have to say no to yourself and yes to the Spirit of God. And there's always a blessing on the other end of saying no to yourself and yes to the Spirit of God. And there's always a curse. There's a, a curse to saying yes to your flesh when your flesh wants to do something opposite of what God wants you to do. So that's an ongoing process for the rest of your life as you live out the process of sanctification. So when people say religion is just a crutch for weak people, you might swing it back, back around to this part of the conversation that what do you mean by weak? Because everybody needs help at some point. And it's really only weak people who allow themselves to be ruled by their base passions. It's only strong people who learn how to walk in the spirit and say no to their base passions and yes to the spirit of God. Hallelujah. All right, I'm going to transition the conversation to one more objection that we're going to deal with here this morning. It's narrow-minded to think that Jesus is the only way to God. And man, I've heard this one a bunch. Now, by the way, I share my faith all the time. There's nobody in my circle that doesn't know where I stand spiritually. And, you know, in my line of work, I, you know, I work outside of, for those of you that are new that don't know, I'm, I'm, I do what Paul, the Apostle Paul did for many years of his ministry. I'm, I'm a tent maker, so to speak. I work outside of the, of the ministry. Uh, I, I, I like to say that I'm a functional medicine consultant during the week so I can pay for my preaching habit on the weekends. <laughs> yeah, until, until the Lord sees fit to, uh, you know, bring me into uh, a situation where I can just do this, just do, do ministry. Not at that point yet, but moving in that direction. So pray for me that the Lord will speed that along. It's all in his timing anyway, right? Okay, but, but, but I, I say all that to say that sometimes I, I go to these conferences out of town and, and some of the people, you know, in our business, in our company, uh, will room share in, in the hotels that we stay in. And man, I, I think now that no one wants to really room with Andy Robbins. Because <laughs> I'm telling you, they will get both barrels. I mean, I've got a captive audience, one-on-one, -on -one, and they get both barrels. And, and seriously, the last couple of conferences we've had, I didn't have a roommate. Hmm. I got to stay up there all by myself and just me and the Lord and have fellowship, which is very cool with me, by the way. But whoever rooms with me gets both barrels. I'm serious. I, I, I roomed with, uh, there's one gentleman in our company who is a very flamboyant and outspoken homosexual and he roomed with me one time and I was like, like <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah 
It's not always comfortable to share your faith, but when you start doing it, it starts to become more natural. And, the, and, and I, I'm going to tell you something else about sharing your faith, too, ladies and gentlemen, and that's this. That, that when you start putting yourself out there and sharing your faith, you know what it does? It makes you pay more attention to how you live. Because now, now you're out there. Now you're, now you're kind of exposed for who you really are. Now you want to make sure you represent the Lord well. Right? So if you're putting yourself out there and uh, really sharing your faith a lot, it's going to make you pay attention to how you live. And if you're not sharing your faith a lot, you're kind of flying under the radar and you feel like you can get away with, you know, cutting corners spiritually. So I just encourage you, man, if you're you're having issues with your character, issues with sin areas, start sharing your faith. You'll get serious real quick. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, let's deal with this objection. It's narrow-minded to think that Jesus is the only way to God, and I've heard this a lot, sharing my faith. So we're going to deal with this for a few minutes. First of all, ask the question, if Jesus was merely one of the many ways to be saved, one of the many ways or roads to God, then why in the world did he have to go to the cross? If Jesus was just one of the many ways to God, like like. Buddha and, and Mohammed and all these. Why in the world did he have to go to the cross and die for mankind's sins? Why would God do that to Jesus if there was all these other many ways to get to God? See, Jesus made this statement right here. And this is a statement, ladies and gentlemen, of exclusivity. This is a very powerful statement right here. Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me, he said. It's a narrow road. Now, the invitation is open to everyone, but it's a narrow road. It's not 47 different ways, it's one way. And doesn't God have the right to choose only one way? He does. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. Okay? And, and so let's deal with this, this statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. See, since Jesus made that claim, that would invalidate him as one of the ways to God if indeed he wasn't the only way, as he said. See, such a claim, listen to me, such a claim is either totally true or it's totally false. There's no in-between. I want to say that again. That statement that Jesus made, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one can come to the Father except through me, is either totally true or it's totally false. There's no in-between. Let me explain what I mean. I want to deal this morning with something I'm calling the trilemma. You've heard of a dilemma or a dilemma, right? Well, I'm going to talk about the trilemma, meaning three. And, And that's the question, was Jesus a liar Was he a lunatic or was he Lord? Okay, so let's deal first of all with the claim, was Jesus a lunatic? Because some people have said that. He was a madman. Okay, well, that claim is not defensible on the basis of Jesus' self-control, his brilliance, and the multiple people that followed him around for three years uh, writing about his life. See, if Jesus was a deranged madman, uh, that would have shown itself in the three years that, that people followed him around examining everything that he did. See, no matter how charismatic some lunatics might be, their lunacy always 
reveals itself at some point and exposes them. Right? See, in fact, the religious leaders of Jesus' day hated him and they wanted to kill him. And they were always trying to bait him into saying something that they could use as a basis for accusing him. But Jesus was too brilliant for that. He always saw past their duplicity and sidestepped it every time. And Jesus even said, he went, even went so far as to say, can any of you accuse me of sin? And they couldn't even do that. Why? Because Jesus was sinless. He was perfect. He was faultless. So they couldn't even accuse him of sin. So no, I think that we can safely say that Jesus was not a lunatic. So what about the other one then? What about, was Jesus a liar? See, it's one thing to be a lunatic and think that you're the son of God and think that, that, that you're, you're some religious figure. But, but then if we can invalidate that, if that's not true of Jesus, well, maybe he was just a charlatan and a liar. Well, let's deal with that. Well, that's not defensible either on the basis that Jesus never contradicted himself and his behavior never belied his words. In other words, his behavior and his words were always consistent. He was never inconsistent and he never lied. And opponents of that statement might say, well, Andy, how how do you know that? Well, we're going to deal with that too in a different teaching where I talk about uh, the reliability of the Bible So that's a little bit more of a protracted discussion that we can't get into this morning, but but stay tuned on that. We'll deal with that as well. Okay, but these are ways that you can deal with this this statement uh, or these objections that it's narrow-minded to think that Jesus is the only way, and yet Jesus claimed to be the only way. So if we can legitimately dismiss the charge that Jesus was a lunatic or a liar, then folks... Jesus' statement about himself leaves no wiggle room. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Is There's just no wiggle room in that statement. So if he wasn't a lunatic and he wasn't a liar, then there's only one other choice. And that's that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. The Lord and Savior of all, the only way to the Father, God in flesh. Hallelujah. Amen. That's right. So then, I want to just give you kind of a sound bite of uh, our message, uh, the message of the gospel, the message that we bear in a sound bite. And I think that as you prepare to engage people in uh, discussions about the gospel, there's just a handful of scriptures that you need to memorize. So the, the, the next three scriptures I'm going to reference here that are also in your notes, I think that you ought to commit them to memory to have right on the forefront of your frontal lobe of your brain um, to be ready for action whenever you have these discussions. Um, So, first of all, the message that we bear in a soundbite before I give you those scriptures is this, that uh, taking the form of frail humanity, God in flesh, what an amazing thought, God in flesh, Jesus Christ, taking the form of frail humanity, took upon himself the punishment for all of mankind's sins so that those who place their faith in him can be saved. Well, saved from what? That needs to be in the discussion too. Saved from what? Saved from eternal judgment, ladies and gentlemen. 
Your, your presentation of the gospel is incomplete if you don't include that. Okay, I didn't plan on saying this, but I, I think I need to insert this before we, I read these scriptures to you and we come to a close. <clears throat> think of it this way. I'm going to come down here and talk to Doug. Let's say that I walk up to Doug and I say, Doug, um, I've got the cure for Groninen's disease. I sold my house to, to pay for this cure for Groninen's disease, and I'm giving it to you as a free gift. And Doug would probably go, thanks. What a nut. Right? See, it, it, it means nothing to him if he doesn't realize that he's got Groninen's disease. And see, if I walked up to, uh, up to him and said, Doug, I think you have Gronin's disease. I can see five clear signs on your flesh, and you're going to be dead in a week unless you get the cure. But don't worry, I sold my house to buy the cure for Gronin's disease, and I'm giving it to you as a free gift. Now he's appreciative of it, right? But without understanding that he's got the disease, then the cure has no relevance to him. See, without people understanding that they have a sin problem that's going to lead them to God's wrath poured out on them, then the cross means nothing to them. Salvation means nothing to them. Telling them that Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life means nothing to them because they already believe that God loves them. Of course, they may be out fornicating every weekend and, you know, they may be living a horrendous, sinful lifestyle, but they think that if there is a God, he must love me because I'm a pretty good person and would never hurt anyone. But when you show them the disease, sin, and the result of the disease, the wrath of God, then the cure to the disease, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, now makes sense. Am I making sense? Yeah? Okay. So they have to understand. And boy, I I could go off. I I didn't plan on talking about this at length this morning, uh, and I'm not going to. Maybe I'll save that for a different teaching. But but taking them through the law, by the way, you know, the law is there. The Bible tells us that the the law is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. You know, some some New Testament Christians will say, well, we're not under the law anymore. We're under grace, so there's really no relevance to the law anymore. That's not true. Man, I've talked to Christians that almost feel like you need to throw the Old Testament out and not ever read it. That Man, the New Testament is built on the old, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, and listen, uh, the Bible tells us that the law is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. We need the law to help us to understand how sinful we are so that we have we understand how needy and broken and sinful we are so that we then have an appreciation for the cure, the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay, is this making sense? Okay, so that needs to be part of your discussion. So again, saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God. So Jesus... People need to understand this, and this needs to be part of your gospel proclamation. Jesus is your stand-in, your substitute. If you want to say it this way, he's your scapegoat. Okay? Making all who believe in him justified. Now, I like that word justified, by the way. Praise God for justification. 
Praise God. And here's the first of three scriptures I'm going to give you that I think is important for you to memorize to engage people. The first one's this, Romans 5, 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from what? God's wrath through him. Is there wrath to come? Absolutely. And people don't want to hear that anymore. It's not even being preached in most churches anymore. God's wrath? Oh, we don't want to do that. That makes people uncomfortable. Exactly. You need to make people uncomfortable. When they see themselves in truth, they ought to feel uncomfortable. The book of, of James tells us that the law is like a mirror that we look into and see ourselves in truth. That's what the law does for us. So to not include this part of the gospel proclamation that there is wrath to come is an incomplete gospel. Okay, there is wrath to come, Romans 5, 9. By the way, before I give you the, the last three verses, or the last two of three verses, um, when, when we left up in Greenwood uh, many years ago, I had this barber that lived right down the street that I went to see. And uh, man, I, every, every time, he was an old biker. And, uh, you know, not a very godly one. Um, he was an old, old Harley guy, Bill. Um, but uh, he was part of that, he was part of that uh, biker crowd that, you know, wasn't, you know, wasn't a, he wasn't part of the CMA, that's for sure. <laughs> the Christian Motorcycle Association, he was on the other side of the fence. And, man, I, I, I talked to him about the, about the Lord nearly every time that I sat down in his chair. And, and one day, right after the Passion of the Christ came out, man, I really engaged him in conversation. And I mean, I was that entire time in the chair. Um, and it, that happened to be a, one day that it was just me and him in the barbershop. And, and so uh, I just really opened up to him and, and, and just laid out the gospel for him and uh, talked about the movie a little bit. And he'd seen it. He went to see the movie with a friend of his. And so that allowed me the opportunity to talk to him about what Jesus has done for us. And you know what he said to me? He said, and this was his objection. This, this was the objection to the gospel that he had. I just can't believe that anyone would do that for me. That's what he said. He said he could not get to the place where he believed that anyone would go upon a cross and die for him a criminal's death, an agonizing, multi-hour, torturous death for him. He couldn't get his head around that. But you know what? I want, to, I want you to understand something. If you ever run into that objection, it, here's how you answer that, especially if the person is a parent. Because I got to thinking about this the other day, and, and this thought just hit me. You know what? If one of my kids, if one of my kids was in a situation where they were going to be, I don't know, tortured to death and then go to hell, would I go to a cross to save my child? Would I die the same kind of death that Jesus died for my child so that they could escape a torturous death and go to hell? And I don't like the thought, but my answer would be yes. Jesus' torture was, give or take, about six hours long. Four hours of that was on the cross. the most horrific death that I've ever heard of, would I do that for my children? <sighs> yes, I would. 
that's something that I believe that you can use to answer people who have that objection. I just can't believe that somebody would do that for me. And when they see the living color of Jesus' torturous agony on the cross, like the passion of the Christ depicts, and people see that and they, they go, there's no way that somebody would do that for me. Yes way, because it happened. And wouldn't you do the same thing for your children? And we're the children of God. God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. The Bible says that God is not willing that anyone should perish, but that all, all would come to the knowledge of repentance. So that's the answer. Hallelujah. Okay, so let me give you um, a couple of other scriptures um, just to illustrate that Jesus is our stand-in. He did die for you and me and for the sins of the whole world and everyone who would reach out to him in repentance. And the first one is in Revelation 3.20, which says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, anyone, hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. And then the one you're more familiar with, John 3.16, and I'm tagging on verse 17 as well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world through him might be saved. I think you ought to memorize those passages, John 3, 16 and 17, Revelation 3, 20, and uh, Romans 5, 9. Um, those should be in your arsenal, ready for action when you talk to people about the gospel. Was this helpful this morning? You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Andy Robbins and Blessed Life Fellowship. For more teaching and ministry resources, go to the church website at www.blessedlifefellowship.org. Thanks for listening, and may God's grace and favor shine on you.